And as you've taken your seats, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and open them up to Acts chapter 21. And uh, we're excited, I'm excited this morning to jump in. There's so much I believe that God has for us this morning. We've been marching through the book of Acts, and, and uh, if you're new with us, we've been going through the, Acts, through the book of Acts for some time, and we've broken it down, our, our main theme being right here behind me, forward, the mandate, ministry, and mission of the church. But as we've been going through it, uh, we've been moving kind of... Uh, uh, slowly through it, kind of gleaning the riches of the Word of God, we've broken it down into a little mini-series throughout, and, and that really kind of capture some of the main themes throughout the book of Acts. And this morning, we're starting a new mini-series, and uh, I've called it this, Taking the Stand. And what we're going to see in the next uh, handful of chapters is the Apostle Paul, kind of at the close of his ministry now, going to literally take the stand in front of the, the powers that be, in front of the world rulers, where he will stand for Jesus Christ and he will declare his allegiance to Jesus Christ and he will declare that there is hope only in the name of Jesus Christ. And I think it's fitting for us to really consider this theme in our own time, in this day and age, in our own lives, maybe wherever you live, wherever you are in your life, I want you to consider this reality. Every generation, including ours, has to fight for the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every generation, without exception, has to fight for the purity of the gospel. Every generation is susceptible from, to veering away from the purity of the gospel. It's actually in our nature, our sinful nature, to reject the gospel's verdict on us and resist the profound simplicity of its transform, transforming message of grace. The gospel is always under attack and at risk of being distorted, altered, and denied. It's been this way throughout all of history. It doesn't just happen here with the Apostle Paul. In fact, this year we celebrate the 500th year of the Reformation. What a great reminder of someone and, and individuals who took a stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ because at the close of the 15th and the beginning of the 16th century, there was a desperate need for reform in the church. The Catholic Church was corrupt History documents this well, a power and money-hungry individuals leading the church, distorting the gospel, and the gospel had been buried under centuries of traditions and superstitions. During this time, a young monk by the name of Martin Luther had a spiritual awakening, and he took up the task of confronting the error before him and rescuing the gospel of Jesus Christ. With unwavering courage, he began to speak up. He began to put paper, or pen to paper, excuse me, and he began to write with profound clarity and power. He began to preach with unbelievable power the truth of God's word. He was standing on the authority of scriptures and he challenged the powers that be, believing that God had called him to this great task, knowing that there would be immense challenges that he would have to face and believing that it would likely cost him his life for standing on the truth of the word of God. But he did so trusting completely in the power and the plan of God. He took a stand for Jesus Christ when it was absolutely needed and the impact was massive even for us today. We stand on the shoulders of this man. In what was known as the deed of worms, he stood trial before the most powerful men in Europe. He was invited to stand before the mighty of this world and to prove that he believed in what he was saying, that he truly believed it. 
He was called before this council to recant of all of his writings, of the stances he had taken about the authority of the scriptures alone, of salvation by grace alone. And as he stood before this council of the world's mightiest, he responded with these now famous words. He said this, since then your majesty and your lordship desire a simple reply. I will answer you without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me, amen. And the earliest versions added these words, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. Though those words were not recorded on the spot, it is likely that they are genuine. Paul, in similar fashion, is preparing to take a a stand for Jesus. He's headed towards Jerusalem and eventually Rome, where he will answer for the gospel and he will declare with unwavering courage the truth about Jesus Christ. As with Paul and Luther and countless others in between and after we too are called to take a stand for Jesus. What is needed from the church, what is needed from you and I today, is the same unwavering courage exhibited by so many faithful followers of Jesus Christ and exhibited very clearly in our text this morning from the life of the Apostle Paul. And the question for us this morning that really sets the stage for the rest of this sermon is this, how how can we exhibit this kind of unwavering courage? How can we have the kind of courage to stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ without compromising, without capitulating, without fear and anxiety and worry? How can we do this? And how can we too, with this kind of unwavering courage, have a radical impact on the world around us? Well, it will not be easy. In fact, what we see from this text is that unwavering courage is only possible if first I engage divine calling. Only if I engage divine calling, if I understand that God has placed a divine calling on my life and I'm willing to engage with that reality, our text begins in verse 1 of chapter 21. We're reminded that the Apostle Paul is on his third missionary journey, and he's kind of at the tail end of this third missionary journey. It says in verse 1, And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went abroad, aboard excuse me, and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Some translations say or frame verse one like this, when we had been torn away from them. I think that really accurately describes the the tone and the heart behind Paul leaving um, the elders that he was speaking to, the Ephesian elders. He was previously in Miletus, he had poured his heart out before the elders, his desire for them and for the church was so crystal clear. He loved them, they wept together, they prayed together, and he was torn away from them emotionally. He knew he had to go. Have you had that feeling of being torn away, maybe from a loved one? Maybe being compelled 
like Paul was, to go, to move away from what was comfortable, what was easy, those that you love so dearly. Here's Paul being ripped away in his emotion from these individuals. And verses one through three just describes for us Paul's hurried journey. He's, he's on a mission. That's what you need to see here. He has a divine calling, and God has made that so abundantly clear to him, and so he is moving down the path that God has directed him to, and I just, I just the, the pace here, we just need to kind of grasp what's happening. It's moving us toward this significant moment where he will deliver the gift that he is bringing to the church in Jerusalem, but ultimately it's moving him further and further toward the ultimate end of his ministry where he will be in Rome to take a stand for Jesus Christ. God had called him to this. And you look at this and you look at the life of the Apostle Paul and what, they must have, what he must have experienced. You say, how, how could the Apostle Paul do what he did? How could Martin Luther do what he did? How could so many in church history do what they did, sacrifice so much for the cause of Jesus Christ? The simple answer is that they understood that there was a divine calling on them. Paul understood as an apostle to the Gentiles what his mission was. It was so clear from God himself. He was to go to the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. His specific call as an apostle was to the Gentiles. That's clear. As a Christian, his call was simple. I'm called to live for the glory of God. I'm called to to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everywhere Paul went on his journeys, we know he went with the mindset of encouraging believers, of building them up. We know he went with the mindset of preaching the good news to anyone who would listen, to all of the unsaved. He desperately wanted them to know the saving truth of Jesus Christ. When you think about Paul on mission and the very specific call that God had placed on his life, I wonder if it causes you to think about God's will for your life. Maybe you've asked that question many times. God, what's your will for me? You know, God's will is a, a funny thing. In a general sense, God's will is clear for many of us as Christians. We, we know the general call to live for him and to preach the gospel. But in a specific sense, sometimes his will seems very unclear, right? Many of us have asked the question, God, is, is it your will that I marry this person? Is it your will that I go to this school, that I, I buy this house? A little bit less clear sometimes, isn't it? But I do believe that God's will is often undeniably clear. Paul exemplifies for us a person, an individual who knew God's will for his life and did God's will in his life. That's what it means to engage in divine calling. It is to have the the knowledge of what God's will is for you and to do it. In this instance, Paul knew that he had to get to Jerusalem, he had to minister to the church there, even though he knew it would bring him hardship and trouble. There is a great sense of purpose and direction in how Paul lives his life here that we need to embody in our own lives. He is always on mission because he knows God's will for his life. Maybe that begs the question again, well, how do I know God's will for my life? And and I think there's an opportunity just to maybe, as a side note, try to help you think through that issue. How do I know God's will for my life? There are certain classic explanations that have been given to us from individuals in church history that are very helpful. For example, um, maybe you've heard of the four councils for determining God's will, the council of God's word, the council of the Holy Spirit, the council of conscience, and the council of others. The four councils taken together often reveal God's will for us. 
Or maybe you've, you've heard of the, the four S's, a heart that is saved, a heart that is spirit-filled, a heart that is sanctified, and a heart that is submitted to God will know the will of God. You know, Christians who really do want to know God's will, I believe will know it. And seeking God's will and in doing it, I really just wanna serve you by giving you a few practical helps as you're trying to navigate your way through life and serve Jesus Christ. I hope that's your desire. And I wanna give you some practical thoughts. I got just four of them here for determining God's will in your life. The first is this, seek good advisors. Seek good advisors. The Bible is so clear about how we need the counsel of others, but I just want to encourage you to seek good advisors. You know, all counsel is not equal, amen? Right, you can go to the wrong sources for counsel and you can hear what you maybe want to hear or maybe be told some things that aren't necessarily true. And if we're wise and we really want to know God's will, we'll, we will acquire good advisors. Those who will be discerning and help you. Those who are mature in the Lord. Those who have your best interest in mind. Those who know the scriptures. Those are people who are good advisors. Those who are over you in the Lord can serve you in that way. Seek good advisors. Here's the second thing. Spend time with God regularly. I am always so amazed that, that those who want to know God's will often are found to be spending no time with God. You know, the thought of going to the scriptures, the thought of calling out to God in prayer is virtually non-existent. And you can know the will of God in your life if you're not willing to go to the one who knows all things, amen? All right, we go to the one, we rely on the one, we call upon the one, we hear from the one who knows his will for us. And so if you're not going to God and you're not drawing near to God through the means of grace that he has provided through his word and through prayer, if you're not saturated with these things, I can just tell you, you're not really gonna know the word of God. You're gonna remain in, in a place of limbo and confusion. Here's the third thing, realize that God's will may not be what you want. Realize that God's will may not be what you want. I, I, again, so often we're driven, we think that all of a sudden, you know, we have it backwards. We think that, that God's desire for us has to line up with our desire for us. Think about that for a second. I think we really believe this sometimes. Right? God, if you really love me, you're gonna give me what I want. And God says, no, I really love you, so I'm gonna give you what I want. And sometimes those things don't line up. And you see, our desires need to become subject to his desires. Our will needs to become subject to his will. And here's, here's maybe finally the most, listen, the most important thing when it comes to seeking God's will in your life. If we know God's, what God wants, excuse me, we must do it. If you know it, then do it. I just, I'm, I'm really convinced of this. For most of us, the problem is not that of knowing God's will, but obeying God's will. And so often God's will, it, it is actually painfully clear in his word, not in all of the, the, maybe the gray areas or nuances of life, but for so much of our life, God has made his will clear to us. There were undoubtedly others in Luther's day, for example, who knew God's will, who knew what the truth of his word said, who believed what God really said about his church, about his scriptures, about salvation. But what made Luther a great man, someone who changed history, is what he did with God's will. If you know you should take an ethical stand with your coworkers, do it. <laughs> If you know God wants you to admit that you're wrong and seek forgiveness from somebody, do it. Don't just sit on it. 
if you know that God is calling you to give, if you know that God is calling you to preach, if you know that God is calling you to serve somewhere, if you know that God is calling you to go to the mission field, listen, do what God is calling you to do. If you know it, you must do it. Do it in his strength and for his glory. Unwavering courage is only possible if I engage divine calling. Christian, have a sense that God is calling you to be used greatly in his kingdom for his purposes and for his glory. Believe that with all of your heart. Seek his face. And as you discover his will for your life, run hard after it. Secondly, notice this, that unwavering courage is only possible if I expect direct challenges. I think that if we don't expect direct challenges, when it comes to our courage, we often waver. We're often so filled with fear because we're caught off guard by the challenges that come our way. And they tend to derail us. And here, it's important to see in this section that there are some who believe that Paul is actually being disobedient to the Spirit of God. Well, notice in verse four with me, let's read it. It says, and having sought out this, the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, listen to that, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship and they returned home. Paul is making great headway on his journey, enough headway in fact that he's able to pause as he gets to Tyre and he is able to spend seven days. And in seven days, one of the things I love about Paul is wherever he goes, he just makes friends. You know people like that? You can just instantly make friends. I, I do love the fact, don't you get this? No, no matter where you go in the world, if you connect with other followers of Christ, there's this instant bond, isn't there? It's a precious gift from God, uh, being a part of the family of God. And Paul here, I love it, he just gravitates towards others who are in the body of Christ. He finds some disciples, and in seven days, the relationship, some of us think that, listen, Christian relationships take so long to foster and develop. He, Paul, seven days, he has people like weeping for him because he's leaving their presence. Some of you are like, I have people weeping because I won't go away. It's just a sweet picture of the kind of fellowship in the body of Christ that is supposed to exist. But what's so unique here is that they're actually telling Paul, don't go, don't go to Jerusalem. And, and did you notice that there are some people who, who read this passage, as I said, and they believe that Paul's actually in sin, that he's violating the will of God, that he's being disobedient to the Spirit's work in his life, and you can see why they might believe that, right? Because it tells us in verse four that through the Spirit, they're telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Through the Holy Spirit, they're telling Paul, don't go, don't go, don't go. So what's happening here? Is this a contradiction? I mean, I mean just consider what Paul is, or Luke has already made clear about this journey to Jerusalem. I think we just need to understand that Paul when he left in Acts chapter 20, he said a tearful goodbye to the elders, tore himself away. He, he understood that he would be facing pain in prison. Chapter 20 makes that very clear. Yet Paul doesn't run away from the challenges. In fact, I think what we see here is not a, not an, a disobedience to the Spirit of God. It is a, a running towards the challenges that he faces in the power of the Spirit of God. 
Paul tells us in Acts 19, verse 21, that he was resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. Think about this. He says, I was resolved, I was compelled in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. He believes this is a divine mission that God has sent him on. In Acts chapter 20, verse 22, the apostle describes himself as going to, to Jerusalem. He says this, constrained by the spirit. So is there a contradiction here? The simple answer is no. But let me tell you what I believe is happening, and this is what most most uh, commentators believe is happening here. You see, what's happening is that the Spirit of God has revealed to these believers the same thing that the Spirit of God has already revealed to Paul, that when he goes to Jerusalem, what awaits for him is pain in prison. And, and you know, their hearts are so for Paul. They love him so deeply. They love him so dearly. The last thing they want for him is suffering and pain. And so they're like, Paul, we know the Spirit has told us, in other words, that, that you're in trouble if you go. Like, don't go, don't you get it? Paul already knows, right? Paul already knows. Paul already made it clear that the Spirit of God has already testified to him what awaits for him in every city he goes to. This is nothing new for Paul. Suffering, pain, abuse, scorn, persecution, opposition, all of it. He's like, I get it, I get it, I get it. That's exactly what I signed up for. And I think, though, we can learn from this that sometimes challenges to following Jesus come in different ways. Sometimes the challenges aren't from direct persecution or, or, or significant opposition. Sometimes they actually come in the form of love. Sometimes they come from those who think they know what's best for us. Sometimes they come in the form of appealing to a sense of comfort and ease and peace and rest. And I just want you to know, Christian, that sometimes those are the greatest obstacles we face in serving Jesus. Martin Luther, the day before he gave that famous speech that I read in the introduction of the sermon, he had some time to call out to the Lord. You see, he had actually hit the pause button. The day before, he was brought before the council, and he was asked to recant, and and he said, can you give me some time to think about it? They said, yeah, well, we'll give you another day. Tomorrow you come back, and we want to hear that you've changed your mind, and you've recanted. And so he goes back, and he gets alone with God, and he prays this prayer that he recorded, and here's what he says in this prayer. He says, how frail and sensitive is the flesh of men. And the devil so powerful and active through his apostles and the wise of the world. Oh, thou my God, my God, help me against the reason and wisdom of all the world. Do this. Thou must do it, thou alone. For this cause is not mine, but thine. For myself, I have no business here with these great lords of the world. Indeed, here it is, listen to this. I too desire to enjoy days of peace and quiet and to be undisturbed. How many of us feel like that? But thine, O Lord, is this cause, and it is righteous and of eternal importance. Do you see what grabbed him in his moment of of longing for comfort and ease? He was caught in this place where he's like, like, this is going to be hard. This is going to be incredibly painful. Is this really worth it? I mean, I just want peace and rest. I want to live my life in quietness, undisturbed. But Lord, Lord, what you've called me to is of eternal importance. What you've called me to matters more than anything else in this universe. Christian, can can you just just embrace that thought when it comes to you and how God wants to use you for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Like what we are giving our lives for is of eternal importance. There is nothing you will give your life for that matters more than the cause and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Nothing. And yet these relationships of love present an unexpected challenge 
But Paul would not be diverted. By the way, I just want to clarify, this is not a justification to abandon wise counsel, okay? I think some of us may be inclined to read this and say, well, I'm just going to do whatever I think God's called me to do, and I don't care what anybody else says. That's not the heart of the Apostle Paul. That's not the heart of the Apostle Paul here at all. And let me give you an illustration to help you think about this. You know, if somebody comes and says, you know, I believe I'm, I'm called to go to the mission field. I, I, I talked to a pastor this past week. His son is a missionary in Afghanistan. Can you imagine, parents, when your son comes to you and says, Mom and Dad, I'm going to go and be a missionary in Afghanistan. It's really dangerous territory. I could lose my life. They hate Christians there. I mean, it's nothing, nothing good but I believe God's called me. Now, here, here's the situation, okay? If that's you and you're like, God's called me to do something and somebody comes to you and says, don't do it because it's really, really dangerous. Just throw that out. That, that's what's happening to Paul. That's what they're saying. Now, now here, it's different if somebody comes to you and says, that's really great and a noble desire, but I need to talk to you because you're actually unqualified to be a missionary. <laughs> There's massive sin areas in your life that are gonna prevent you from being used by God. Well, that's okay, God's calling me to this. No, 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 no. You see the difference in the counsel there? It's dangerous versus you're unqualified. Those are two very different things. And if somebody comes to you and says it's dangerous, listen, you just embrace this. This is what you signed up for. You signed up for a life of danger when you embrace Jesus Christ. There will be, there will be direct challenges that may cause you to waver in the face of standing for Jesus Christ. It may cause your courage to be compromised, to be fractured, to be weakened. What is it for you? Maybe you wrestle like Martin Luther did and maybe like Paul was tempted to consider. Yeah, I kind of want a life, a life of ease and comfort too. I know what awaits me if I follow Jesus Christ, but if I don't, then, then I, I, I can relax a little bit. I can enjoy a little bit more peace and quiet in my life. If I take the stand for Jesus with my peers, if I take the stand for Jesus in my family, if I take the stand for Jesus with my coworkers, with my neighbors, if I do that, it's gonna make my life more challenging. Yes, and that's okay. Expect it. Expect that if you stand for Jesus, challenges are gonna come so that you're not caught off guard and you're not tempted to compromise and waver in your courage. Paul exhibits unwavering courage. He expects the challenges. This is nothing new for him. Notice this thirdly, thirdly, I can only be unwavering in my courage if I embrace the deep cost. I can only be unwavering in my courage if I embrace deep cost. And, and you know, there's some overlap here with the previous point. We need to expect the challenges, but sometimes the challenges are greater than we thought they might be. They cost more than we thought was reasonable of God to ask of us. And here what we see is the pressure begins to increase on Paul. Verse seven says, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus and we, were, we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying, 
for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt, and he bound his own feet and hands, and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Oh, the pressure on Paul is just immense at this point. He arrives in Caesarea, the port city of Jerusalem. There he finds Philip the evangelist. You'll remember him from Acts chapter 8. He's the one who uh, uh, converts, by the grace of God, the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip is the gracious host for the apostle Paul. And by the way, Philip also was the first to take the gospel to Samaria. He had four daughters who may have further, by the way, prophesied about Paul's difficult future. We have no idea what kind of information they gave or reiterated, but we, we know that there was something shared. Following that, the prophet named Agabus, he's mentioned once before in Acts as well as a legitimate prophet, he now comes along with an Old Testament-style prophecy. In the book of Ezekiel chapter 4, Ezekiel had told of the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem by assaulting a model that he made of the city of Jerusalem, a very visual kind of illustration of what God was saying to his people. And here, Agabus, he dramatically demonstrates and foretells Paul's imminent future. He, he takes off his belt and he wraps it around his own hands and his own feet, and this is a public setting, and he says, in the same way, Whoever owns this belt, this will happen to him. You'll notice that it says that thus the Holy Spirit. In other words, again, this is divine revelation from God. The Jews are going to hand him over in Jerusalem. Do you see the concern here? You're going to go to Jerusalem, Paul. And you just got to know that when you get there, you're, you're in big trouble. Now, I want you to notice this. Agabus here, he's not telling Paul not to go. Did you catch that? He's simply telling him, and everyone watching, by the way, what's in store. At this point, you may be thinking, Paul would be like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> like, why, why you got to keep rehashing this? I get it. I get what's going to happen. All right, you're going to make it visual for me? I get it. Like, what's the point of all this repetition? Why is this being put on full display? Why is this being put on public display in front of everybody? Again, I, I think the picture here being publicly declared is that it's not going to be easy. There's a deep cost that comes from choosing to follow Jesus Christ. Taking a stand for Jesus Christ often means more suffering. In fact, Jesus could not have been more clear. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus, he says a number of different times, how challenging it is to follow him, really what it means to become a follower of Jesus Christ. In chapter 9, verse 23, it says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you, truly, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. In, in those very words, Jesus is saying, don't you get it? When you come and follow me, you need to be willing to give up your whole life to follow me. You need to be willing to take a stand and declare your allegiance to me no matter what the cost. Discipleship is a series of deaths. It is a perpetual dying. Discipleship embraces suffering as a part of life. And this goes against prevalent Christian thinking. So many of us think like this, right? We think God wants me to be happy. That's God's will for my life, right? God wants me to be happy. Follow the logic. I'm not happy, therefore, I'm not in God's will. God doesn't want me to experience pain. I'm in pain. Therefore, I'm not in God's will. That is counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that is the way that so many of us want to think about the Christian life. And Oswald Chambers expresses the proper approach perfectly for us. Listen to what he says. He says, to choose to suffer means that there is something wrong, right? To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. We don't follow Jesus because it's easy, or because it's fun, or because it gives us a trouble-free life. That's not why we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus because it's right, because it's true, and because ultimately, it is life-giving and soul-satisfying, amen? So why, why this public display? I believe with all my heart that this is to test Paul's courage. And it is to test the courage of the believers around him. It's almost as if God's saying, Paul, okay, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? I keep telling you to expect this. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? And all the Christians around have to watch Paul know that he is following Jesus right into suffering. And the question that they need to ask about their own life is this, am I willing to follow Jesus too? Am I willing to follow Jesus no matter what the cost? Am I willing to follow Jesus if it means pain and suffering and trouble? Let me just ask you, are you prepared to suffer for Jesus? Are you willing to count the costs? Will you take the stand for Jesus? Problems, pain, persecution, all these provide platforms to display unwavering courage and to put the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ on full display. And that's why unwavering courage is only possible if, lastly, I exhibit determined confidence. Verse 12 says, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? 
For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. This is such just, just an amazing, amazing passage of scripture. Under the unbearable pressure the weight that he was experiencing. Paul doesn't waver one bit. He doesn't crack at all. I love, I love the emphasis here. Paul's like, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Like, you're making this so hard on me. You think I want to suffer? You think I want pain? You think I want persecution? This, this is what I want. I wanna be with you. I wanna pour into you. I wanna do life with you, but I have to go. God is compelling me to do this. I don't have a choice in the matter, don't you see? I know what's at stake, but I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And they finally, finally they give in, and since he would not be persuaded, I love that, right? There are certain things we should never be persuaded of, and disobeying the will of God is one of them, amen? Like Paul is just immovable when it comes to obeying God. And notice this, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. The, the we, just, just remember, Luke himself is involved in this appeal to Paul. Don't go, Paul, don't go. Even Luke, one of his closest friends. Now, I, I wonder, I don't know, it's hard to sometimes get the, the tone of the text. I'll try and do my best. I, I wonder if there was a sense in some of them that was like, all right, Paul, whatever, let the will of the Lord be done. That's possible. But I wonder if some of them realized after Paul declared this powerful truth in verse 13, realized that Paul was on the track that God had put him on and said with confidence, as Paul had been so confident and determined, let the will of the Lord be done. He's counted the cost. And he renewed his resolve to press forward on the path that God set before him. This is a staggering demonstration of determined confidence. <laughs> I walked out the door this morning. And uh, my, my daughter, Kara, she's eight years old, almost nine years old. We've been talking. She, she asks me, just recently this past week, she's asking me, Dad, are you, are you nervous to get up and preach in front of people? I said, well, you know, sometimes, sometimes I'm nervous, but you know, let me tell you why. I'm just, I, I want to honor the Lord. I want to get it right. I want to be pleasing to him. I want to serve God's people well. So we had this conversation this past week, and I was sharing with her that I trust God's word. I trust, I trust in God that he's going to use his word to do what he promises he'll do, and that's where my hope is. That's where my confidence is. So I, I'm walking out the door this morning, and my daughter, she runs up. She gives me a big hug. She says, Dad, I love you. We'll see you at church a little bit later. And then she puts her hand on my shoulder. She reaches up. She looks at me in the eyes and says, Dad, be confident. <laughs> I, I, said, I looked at her and said, Confident in who? And she looks at me with this kind of like duh look. She's like, in God. <laughs> to which I said, amen. You got it. 
you know, there, there is, when you're doing the work of the Lord, in whatever capacity the Lord has called you to do, and he calls you to do it with a determined confidence, with the belief, listen, the belief that God is sovereign, with the belief that when you do his will, he will do what he promises to do. God will work through your obedience. God will work through your faithfulness. But so much of the key, listen, to our faithfulness, to our following through, is a determined belief that God is the one who is seated on the throne. God is the one who is sovereign. God is the one who's in control. And that's why we can say with the utmost confidence, Lord, your will be done, not my will, your will, Lord. We desperately, don't we need pictures of unwavering courage in the lives of those who follow Jesus Christ, of those who demonstrate a deep conviction in the complete control of God Almighty over all things, including their frail and feeble life. That's one of the reasons I love to read Christian biographies. I love reading about those who have gone before us, who have demonstrated unbelievable degrees of confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit and the faithfulness of God. That's why in Hebrews chapter 11 we are given the hall of fame of faith that we can be reminded of those who walked by faith and not by sight, of those who believed that God was in control, that if they were simply obedient to what God had called them to do, God would be faithful to do what he promised to do. They remind us that we can have a determined confidence because our God truly is in absolute control. Nothing can happen to us unless God allows it. And what God calls us into, listen, he will give us power to go through. He will walk with us. He will walk within us. And what happens here in this passage ultimately is what hap- must, must happen, excuse me, to all of those who trust in God We must be willing to surrender to his will. We must be willing to surrender to his way. We must be willing to surrender to his rule. So let me ask you, Christian, listen, loved ones, what is God calling you to do? Who is God calling you to serve? Who is God calling you to evangelize? Who is God calling you to disciple? Fathers, let me speak to you for a minute. Listen, your kids, your kids desperately need to see in their home a picture of someone with unwavering courage with the willingness by the grace and power of God to stand for Jesus Christ. They need to see it in your home. Wives, your children need to see a mother who will stand for Jesus Christ, who will not compromise. Christian, our church, wherever you are, our church needs to see pictures of people who will not compromise, who are unwavering in their courage, who will stand for Jesus Christ. We need to see this, not just in history past, we need to see this present moment in this day, in this place. It's time to give up control and surrender to his. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And I want us to respond in worship, but as we do that, listen, I, w- I want to draw a parallel here. Don't, don't leave me here, okay? Don't leave yet. Don't check out. This is really important. There is a massive parallel over the next handful of chapters in Paul's trial and his stand for Jesus. A massive parallel between Paul and Jesus Christ. 
as Paul takes the stand, there is being drawn an intentional parallel with Jesus. Paul, in other words, just listen, listen, Paul is simply being like his master Jesus. He's simply following in the footsteps of his savior, Jesus Christ. While we follow Paul's example here in this text this morning, it's important to hear Paul saying to us, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Our hope is not in Paul, amen? He is not the greatest example of unwavering courage. Jesus Christ is. Christ's unwavering courage, I believe, is what drove Paul. He knew what Jesus had done. He knew what Jesus had suffered. He knew what Jesus had went through. He knew what Jesus was called to. He knew that Jesus was engaged in a divine call upon his life to save the world from their sins. He knew that Jesus was expecting the challenges not only of the Pharisees, but of Satan himself. And listen, even his closest friends who tried to prevent him from going to the cross. He knew that Jesus was willing to embrace the deep cost. The deepest cost of all, giving his life as a ransom for many, giving his life for you and I. He knew that Jesus Christ was willing to go to the cross, to hang on a piece of wood, to suffer the very wrath of God upon himself in our place. He knew that Jesus Christ was willing to suffer and die, and he knew beyond a shadow of doubt that Jesus Christ was the one who would exhibit determined confidence in the Father's plan. That's why Jesus Christ himself would kneel down before his God and say, not my will be done, but yours. So when we take the stand for Jesus with unwavering courage, let us look, like Paul, to Jesus Christ, who first, listen, took the stand for us. I'm convinced with all my heart that we will not stand for Jesus unless we first stand in awe of Jesus. And I believe that characterizes the heart of the Apostle Paul, and I want it to characterize my heart, and I want it to characterize yours. So let me invite you now to stand with me, and let us stand together, and let us declare these words with hearts full of faith, full of courage, full of trust in our great and mighty God. Let's sing it together.